Okay, we will continue now with the examination of the Mahasapitatana Sutta. And now we are studying the very last section of the Sutta, that is the section on the Four Noble Truths. And last time we had examined the Buddha's explanation of the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering or dukkha. And now in the second noble truth, the Buddha inquires into the cause of suffering, what he calls the noble truth of the origin of suffering. Dukkha Samudayan Arya Satsang. And he says, and what monks, we are working from the Sotopapi Sutta, and what monks is the noble truth of the origin of suffering? It is that craving, tanha, which gives rise to rebirth, it's called in Pali, Pono Bhavika, which means literally, which leads to renewed existence, to repeated becoming. Bound up with pleasure and lust, finding fresh delight, now here, now there, that is to say, sensual craving, craving for existence, and craving for non-existence. Okay, so here we have some important descriptions of the nature of craving. First, how craving leads to suffering. I think that there are two aspects to this problem, which I've explained earlier. First, there's an immediately visible way in which craving leads to suffering, a way that we can see right here and now in our personal experience. This is simply that the more craving there is, when that craving is frustrated or disappointed, then there comes sorrow, pain, misery. One wants to, if we just go back to the first noble truth, we have suffering as being coming into contact with what is unloved. Through craving, one always wants what is pleasant and enjoyable. So when we are thrown into contact with what is unpleasant or disagreeable, because of the tanha for what is pleasant, then there comes suffering. Then there is craving always to remain united with what is pleasant and agreeable. And because we have to be separated from what is pleasant and agreeable, then there comes the suffering of separation from what is loved. Right? These are just immediately evident facts of experience that we can see many, many times in our day-to-day life. We always want to remain, to come into contact with what is pleasurable and agreeable, and that is a craving. We always want to avoid what is unpleasant and disagreeable, and that is a craving. But the nature of life is such that again and again we encounter what is disagreeable, 
again and again we are separated from the pleasant and agreeable. So this, these are ways in which craving here and now causes sorrow, misery, even despair to arise. Then, through craving, we always want to get what we want. Even at the most general level, we want always to remain young, we want always to remain healthy, we want ultimately to live forever without dying, without having to experience the death of those who are beloved by us. But we do not succeed in getting what we want. We have to grow old, we fall sick, we have to die, and everyone that we're attached to has to die. So not to get what one wants, that is suffering, and that suffering also arises from craving. <clears throat> okay, so those are aspects of the noble truth of suffering that we can discover for ourselves if we just examine the facts of our own personal experience. And that basis itself should be a a means by which we can understand that if we're going to get free from suffering, then we have to overcome our craving. But there is a deeper aspect to this relationship between craving and suffering, something that we generally cannot see just simply by examining our ordinary experience. But this is something which has been disclosed to us by the Buddha on the basis of his enlightenment. And this is something which also can be confirmed, but only through the deeper stages of panya, of wisdom or insight. And that is the fact that craving is the driving force which underlies the process of repeated existence that as long as there is tanha, craving for anything, still remaining, even in a very subtle form in our mind, that craving becomes the seed or driving power which will bring a new birth and which will bring into existence all the suffering of life again and again. And this aspect of craving is underscored by the Buddha when he describes craving as pono babita. That is, craving is that force which gives rise to rebirth or renewed existence. Even though I speak of life A here, and A is the first letter of the alphabet, we shouldn't think that life A is the first life that this being has ever lived. The process, in fact, is without any beginning, but one has to start, start the letter someplace. Okay, so we take life A, that's one previous life, and within that life, at the time the person dies, they're still craving tanha. And that craving is itself based on ignorance, not understanding the true nature of life. And it, the craving gives rise to various actions, good and bad actions, which bring the accumulation of karma. Then, when death take, takes place, through the force of that craving, it brings into being 
the five aggregates of clinging, panjupadana chanda. That's when the Buddha sums up the first noble truth, he says, in short, the five aggregates of clinging are suffering. And so this is that special deep causal relationship of tanha, craving, and suffering. That tanha, craving, brings into being in the new life, life B, the five aggregates, the process of mind and body. At the moment of conception, craving generates the rebirth consciousness. And along with the rebirth consciousness, there is a physical basis. In the case of a human rebirth, it will be the ovum, the seed, the fertilized egg. And along with consciousness, there will also be the other three mental aggregates, feeling, even at the very moment of rebirth, there's some feeling, there's some perception, and there are some other mental factors. All of them are right there at the moment of conception. Then as the birth process unfolds, the body becomes more and more developed and complex, and the mind grows in complexity. But until at the moment of birth, the new being comes out into the world, a set of five aggregates. Then that baby grows up, becomes a child, a youth, an adult, and this is and within that same life, if that person is still living in ignorance, not understanding the true nature of existence, then there will take place craving and attachment. And through that craving or attachment, the person will engage in actions which will bring the accumulation of more karma. And then that craving will become the seed or force that will generate still a further existence in the future, its life seed. And so we have this kind of, we might call it a, leaf, a leaf fraud pattern of the five aggregates give rise or serve as a basis for craving. And craving is also found within the five aggregates. Craving is not something separate from the aggregates, but craving belongs to which of the five aggregates? belongs to one of the five aggregates. No, not Vedana, not feeling. Not Upadana. Upadana is not one of the five aggregates. Not consciousness, no. So two are down. Sankara, it's the Sankara Tandra the aggregate of mental formation. Craving is actually the same as loba, greed. When the Buddha speaks of the three unwholesome roots, then he uses the word greed. But in the Four Noble Truths, he uses the word craving. They're the same thing, but just different words. And these are one of these sankaras belonging to the fourth aggregate. And so craving is something within the five aggregates of this life. It's the force within the five aggregates that brings into being the five aggregates of the next life. And those five aggregates will also contain craving. And if that craving is not eliminated, then that craving will bring still a new life. And that's it goes on and on and on. 
That's why the Buddha says that samsara is without any conceivable beginning. And unless one makes the effort along the Noble Eightfold Path, it will be without an end. Okay, so craving gives rise to rebirth, and that craving is bound up with Nandi Raga. Nandi is, he translates pleasure, but I would prefer delight, getting delight or enjoyment from things. And Raga is lust or attachment. And so, these are actually two aspects of craving. Sometimes when we get what we want, then we're enjoying it. That is nandi, pleasure or delight. When we don't have what we want, then there is raga, that's desire or lust. And those are different aspects of the way that tanha works. Usually if we, if you just examine the way your own mind works, you see when you have something you want, well let's say first when there's something that you see or know of that you want but you don't have it, then you're desiring it. Say if you're sitting in the room and somebody in the kitchen is preparing a delicious meal, then you smell the food being cooked, and that awakens desire, desire for the food. So then you're impatient, you're looking at the watch, when will the meal be ready? Okay, that's getting a little upset and angry and flicking your lips. That's, that's raga then you have the delicious meal in front of you and you're eating it and enjoying it and even though the telephone might be ringing the doorbell is ringing but you don't pay any attention because there is delight or enjoyment <laughs> okay and then the next phrase is that craving is in Pali, tatra tatra nandini, which means that it's always, I would say, seeking fresh delight, now here and now there. That is, it's the nature of craving, or the mind with craving, always to be seeking some new enjoyment. The Pali expression, tatra tatra, it implies that the, it's the nature of the mind, when it gets what it wants, it sort of up, draws out whatever kind of enjoyment it can, then it discards that object and goes seeking someplace else for new enjoyment. That works from, you say, from moment to moment within our immediate existence, and it's also what keeps the process of rebirth going from life to life. What drives it on is this quest always to find some new, sometimes a more intense form of enjoyment, different form of enjoyment. But through craving, the mind is always seeking some fresh delight. Now, in one object, now in another object. If, for example, you have a piece of music which you enjoy very, very much, then you are locked in a room. And let's imagine that you're not locked in the room, but there is some malicious demon which keeps you glued to the chair <laughs> and put this being put on the phonograph this delightful piece of music which you love then you listen the first time it's very very wonderful 
then he plays it a second time. Again, you enjoy it. Third time gets a little bit boring, or a little bit familiar. The fourth time is getting boring. The fifth time, a little more boring. Till if you're listening to that most loved piece of music, the ninth time, the tenth time, it's torture. If you're listening the 90th time, the 100th time, it's agony. <laughs> so the mind won't remain satisfied with what gives regular enjoyment, but always it seeks some fresh enjoyment, now here, now there. And then the Buddha distinguishes three types of craving three aspects of craving. This is first kama tanha, which means sensual craving. This is craving for any of the five types of sense pleasures. Craving for enjoyable forms, sounds, smells, tastes, and tangible sensation. And also I think we can include within Kamatanha craving also for the objects which provide these senses. Craving for possession, craving for wealth, which is the means of acquiring pleasurable objects. Then the second aspect of craving is called bhavatanha. This is craving for existence. This, I think, can be understood quite simply as the desire to go on existing. It's the, sometimes called the urge for life preservation, the instinct of life preservation. And it's the same craving for existence that becomes the real powerful force that maintains the process of repeated existence, that keeps the round of rebirth going. Then there's another type of craving which is not so common. This is the craving for non-existence which is often understood as the desire for self-annihilation or self-extinction. This is a desire, a craving, which is based on the view of self or the sense that I am a real self, but because I might have met a lot of suffering and hardship and misery in this life, I want to escape from this misery by extinguishing myself, by annihilating myself. Perhaps this is the kind of craving which leads people to commit suicide. Their life becomes so miserable, so unbearable, that the only escape they can think of is by extinguishing their life. But will that solve the problem? Will it solve the problem? Why? <laughs> okay, that's the way these terms craving for existence and craving for non-existence are usually understood. But I also sometimes wonder if they couldn't be understood in the sense craving for existence as the wish for things to remain, for something to remain as it is. The wish for, say, this body to remain forever the wish for everything around me to remain if it's pleasant and enjoyable and craving for non-existence 
the wish that things will be different from the way they are, the wish to eliminate what is unpleasant or disagreeable in my experience. This is just an idea. I haven't seen this explained in the text, but it's a possible interpretation. Okay, now this passage that we've just examined, the first paragraph of section 19, when the Buddha explains the Four Noble Truths in other places in the suttas, that is enough. He just ends it right there, that one paragraph. But now in the Mahasapipatthana Sutta, we have this long additional passage which occurs only here. Nowhere else does one find it. And the Buddha begins this long additional passage by asking where does this craving arise and establish itself? In the Pali it reads, when this craving arises, where does it arise? And when it establishes itself, or where when it settles down, where does it establish itself? Then he answers with a very simple statement, wherever in the world there is anything agreeable and pleasurable, there this craving arises and establishes itself. First, here the Buddha indicates we might call two stages in the development of craving. First, craving arises for something. This is usually when one first experiences something that one hasn't experienced before. Somebody, for example, might collect musical records. This is my experience many, many years ago before I became a monk. I used to like music very much. So when you see in the shop a new record that one hasn't seen before, the first time you see it, then the craving arises. Uh, immediately, in my case, it doesn't arise like that. So you see it, and then it just registers in the mind. Then you go home, and then that memory comes back. Ah, I have to get it. Then the craving settles on that object. It continually holds on to that object till it becomes an obsession, something that one has to get. That is craving establishing itself, settling down. It's used very commonly in advertising. First, you have to acquaint people with a new idea. You just look in the daily news, you see this hotel gallery in Colombo. Every once in a while, they're going to have now it's a Hungarian food. <laughs> Next month, maybe it will be Japanese night. Uh, another week, it will be Italian night, Spanish night. So you've, you've never had these foods before, so you see the advertisement and you think, ah, I have to go, even though it's... 500 rupees for one meal, but I've never had Hungarian food before. <laughs> so the craving arises. Then you go maybe one time, try it, then a few months later, there's going to be Hungarian night. And so then you think, ah, I have to go again. 
And so craving settles down on the object because it repeatedly arises. And so then the Buddha, the Buddha asks, where does this craving arise and establish itself? Whatever in the world is of a agreeable and pleasurable nature, their craving settles. Craving doesn't settle on things which are painful, which are causes of misery, things which are disagreeable. And it doesn't arise the things which are just very ordinary, things which are monotonous, things which are uninteresting, but the craving arises and settles and settles on what is agreeable and pleasurable. If we lived in a world in which all that we ever saw was a gray, a gray expanse of color, and all that we ever heard was a continuous monotone that never varied, so that we never recognized any difference in the sound. If we had just no sensation of smell, no sensation of taste, and touching just, just an utterly indifferent touch sensation, and these sensations went on forever, then there would just be no opportunity for craving to arise. But the sensory field is always changing. There's many different forms, many different sounds, smells, tastes, tangible sensations. Oh, maybe if, even if all the senses were just bland and indifferent, but then there would be the mind would always be able to entertain ideas. So craving could still arise through the mental office. Okay, but it's because we live in a world of changing sensory objects and the mind is always changing in response to those objects. The tanha, the craving, is always scanning the visual field, the field of sound, smells, taste, touches, and ideas, selecting what is pleasant and agreeable, and clinging to it, and seeking to escape from what is unpleasant and disagreeable. Okay, so then the Buddha next asks, and what is there in the world that is agreeable and pleasurable? Piyarupang, Satarupang. The terms are identical. Okay, now he will go through different sets or classes of the objects to which we cling through craving. Okay, the I is something in the world which is agreeable and pleasurable. There this craving arises and establishes itself. He repeats the same formula with each of the five, each of the six sense faculties. The eye is agreeable and pleasurable. The ear is agreeable and pleasurable. There this craving arises and establishes itself. And so for the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. These are the six indriyas, the six sense faculties. Usually we don't think that we're clinging to the sense faculties because in our experience what is most obvious, what, what concerns us most intensely are the objects that we're aware of. 
but in order to be aware of the object of form if there is no eye no visible no faculty of vision can we be aware of form can we in order to enjoy pleasant sounds what do we need the ears to experience pleasant smells pleasant taste tongue, and pleasant touches the skin the body and pleasurable ideas of course the mind and so even though we might not be so distinctly aware of it but at a subtle level there is this clinging to the six sense faculties as the basis for experiencing pleasant sense objects okay then in the next paragraph it's actually to be a separate paragraph the buddha brings in the six sense objects sight or form sound smell taste tangible then mind objects or ideas each of these objects is something in the world which is agreeable and pleasurable and there this craving arises and establishes itself okay so now we have faculties the six sense faculties the six sense objects then when the faculty i'm sorry when the object impinges on the sense faculty there arises consciousness so corresponding to the six sense objects or the six sense faculties there are the six types of consciousness eye consciousness ear consciousness nose consciousness tongue consciousness body consciousness and mind consciousness consciousness is the mental faculty through which one is aware of the object if there is the eye and forms visible forms are accessible to the eye but if the mind is distracted or if one is asleep then there won't be any eye consciousness or there'll be there could be an eye consciousness but it will be directed to some other object except that is if one is distracted if one is asleep then no sense consciousness at all okay so we're not aware of being attached to this these consciousnesses but in fact to experience any object what actually experiences the object is consciousness and so there is a clinging to each of the six types of consciousness then through the coming together of consciousness with the object there is something called contact pasta pasta is the mental touching of the object by the mind and so corresponding to the six sense faculties we have six types of contact eye contact ear contact nose contact and so on these are also pleasurable and agreeable things in the world of course there are painful contact contact with disagreeable forms sounds smells and so on and their craving doesn't settle and attach itself but also amongst the contacts there are the pleasant and agreeable ones 
and it is there that craving becomes a passion. Then through contact there arises feeling. When the object is an agreeable and pleasurable object, then what kind of feeling will usually arise? A pleasant feeling. And craving will latch on to that pleasant feeling and it tries to increase pleasurable feelings and to make them last as long as possible. Then comes, along with feeling, feeling is the mental factor by which one experiences the quality of the object as being agreeable or disagreeable, enjoyable or distasteful. Then along with feeling there comes perception. Perception is the mental factor by which one is able to distinguish the distinct properties of the object by which one identifies colors, sounds, smells, taste, touches, ideas. It's through perception that one weaves these various qualities together to form the appearance of stable objects, things that one can encounter again and again on different occasions. And perception which enables us to differentiate more and more finely the qualities of the objects that we experience. Through perception we are able to look at, say, a beautiful sunset and we can distinguish the different colors as the sky changes from yellow to orange to red. Through the perception of sounds, we can hear all the distinct notes in a song or a symphony. Through perception of smells that we could distinguish, that is a curry poo curry, this is a potato curry, this is a fish curry. Those tastes that we can distinguish all the subtle tastes. And so it's perception which enables us to distinguish at ever final levels the particular qualities of objects. And it's by so distinguishing all of these qualities that tanha craving gets this opportunity to arise and to settle. Then, building upon perception, there will arise volition. Volition is in Pali, it's This is the will to action, the will to act in regard to any of the objects of perception. The Buddha distinguishes that there is volition in regard to sight. That is, for example, when we see something beautiful that we want, then there comes the will, the intention to obtain it. When there are perceptions of sound, then there will arise a volition in regard to that sound, the will to obtain it. And so in regard to smell, taste, touches, and mind objects. 
And this volition that arises in regard to the object, this is what forms karma. Karma is volition, patron. Then in the next passage, the Buddha <coughs> speaks of craving. This is a very interesting passage. The Buddha speaks of craving for sight, sound, smell, taste, and so on as something in the world which is agreeable and pleasurable in regard to which craving arises and establishes itself. That is, usually we think simply that craving arises in regard to other things, particularly the object. But craving can also rise, arise and settle upon craving itself. This is a special, an especially strong binding force because one wants not only to enjoy the object, but there is this craving for craving. So one might come to realize, for example, that if one deprives oneself of an object which one especially enjoys, then the deprivation will make the craving for it arise more strongly. And when the craving arises more strongly, then when one satisfies the craving, one gets more enjoyment out of it. For example, to take the example that I used earlier, the piece of beautiful music that if you were to listen to again and again, it would cause first boredom, then torment, then agony. But if you don't listen to it for three or four weeks, then the desire to listen to it increases, increases, and becomes stronger. So then when you listen to it after that period of deprivation, then you enjoy it very, very much. And so there builds up this second level of tanha, of craving, which wants to increase the first level of craving so that by obtaining the object of desire one can enjoy it more intensely. In that way, craving arises and establishes itself upon the craving for the sixth sense object. So at the first level of craving, we have craving for the sixth sense object. At the second level, we have a craving 
for that craving. We have a craving for each of the types of cravings based on the six tense objects. Then there is what is called the tukka, which is thinking or applying the mind to an object. And so there is thinking about form, about sight, sound, smell, taste, tangible, and mental objects. And that thinking is also an object of craving. Somebody doesn't want to indulge his senses as soon as the idea of some sense object comes to the mind, but he enjoys thinking about these objects, and then in the next passage, pondering them, or say, examining them. And so this thinking and pondering in the mind these also become objects of craving. And so all of this now, as we come to the end, all of this is a very detailed explanation of where craving, of what is that the agreeable and pleasurable things in the world upon which in regard to which craving arises and establishes itself. And I find it an interesting question to raise is why does the Buddha bring this long passage into the explanation of the second noble truth in the Satipatthana Sutta? Nowhere else is it found. Anybody have any idea of why this is so? I think that's exactly right. I think. I mean, there's no explanation why the Buddha gives this here. But here, the Buddha is explaining, we have to remember that he's explaining the Four Noble Truths not just in the abstract way as the doctrine, but he's explaining it as a kind of contemplation in the practice of Satipatthana. And so when one is practicing Satipatthana in regard to the Four Noble Truths, one has to be examining one's experience with mindfulness to see how craving arises and where it arises. And in order to lay out very, very totally the complete range of objects upon which craving can arise and settle, the Buddha gives this detailed explanation which leaves out nothing, really. So if one is constantly being mindful and practicing unbroken mindfulness all day long, then there'll be times when sometimes one will see beautiful forms, hear pleasant sounds, have maybe the taste delicious food, or just think of thoughts of beautiful objects. There'll be different types of feeling arise, different perceptions, and as mindfulness gets more and more refined, it will be able to distinguish what is the object that craving is settling upon? Whether it's a form, a sound, smell, taste, whether the craving is getting settled on the sense faculties, 
the consciousness, the contact, the feeling, the perception, the um, volition, when craving is settling upon craving itself, when craving is settling upon the thought and the pondering in the mind. Okay, so that I think is the explanation. Okay, so that takes us to the end of the second noble truth, the truth on the origin of suffering. Are there any questions? I've had my turn to ask some questions. So if you have questions, then you can ask. he'll be reborn under unfortunate circumstances, but I would not agree that he has no craving for existence. When he commits suicide, he actually has a very strong craving for existence. He really wants to go on existing, but the circumstances of his life are not agreeable to him, and so he can't satisfy that craving for existence under present circumstances. So that's why he becomes so depressed and dejected, and he seeks an escape from it by committing suicide. But still, deep within his mind, there's a very powerful craving to go on existing in some form. Even if he doesn't, there are many people in the West who don't believe in any, any existence after death, whether of the Christian variety and eternal existence or in the Buddhist form of rebirth. And because of their misery, they commit suicide. But still, that craving for existence is a power, very powerful, instinctive force which doesn't depend on one's ideas about whether there's a life beyond or not. But just as if somebody, if you're walking down a road and somebody jumps out and attacks you, instinctively you draw back to preserve your life. That instinctive drawing back is the manifestation of bhavatanha. At that, that moment, it doesn't matter what view you have about what comes after death, but just through the sheer clinging to existence, one becomes frightened and draws back. And that same craving for existence that will be there in the person who commits suicide. And since that committing a suicide is an unwholesome karma, and it usually takes place with the mind and the face of depression, agitation, despair, those types of very dark mental states are unwholesome karma which will lead to an unfortunate rebirth. Are there any other questions? Okay, then we will stop for today and pick up again next Thursday.